Hello, Alex Zane here. Thank you for choosing to listen to Just The Facts. And while you can still enjoy these episodes forever, you might want to check out our brand new show, A Trip To The Movies, where each week a different famous film fan curates their perfect night out at the cinema, picking what snacks they'd eat, where they'd sit, who they'd go with, and of course, what movies they'd screen. If you love cinema as much as we do, search A Trip to the Movies with Alex Zane or head to our socials at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod to find out more. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Just The Facts with me, Alex Zane, the podcast that takes a journey through the cinematic CV of a different guest every week to uncover some fascinating facts about their career. And thank you for being here for our fantabulous 14th episode. If you haven't done so already, I know I keep saying this. I'm probably going to keep saying it as well. Please do hit the subscribe button right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us and a brand new episode will be delivered to your device, to your ears, into your brain forevermore. Ad infinitum, as long as we keep making them. Also on that note, if you could leave us a little review, a little review or a rating, that would be brilliant as well. If you've got the time, if you're hearing this and going, I can do that right now, do do it right now. I know you can do it on Apple Podcasts. If your platform, your pod platform allows it, then a little rating and review would be amazing for us and hugely appreciated. Don't forget as well, for all the latest updates about upcoming guests and to get in touch with us, uh, we will get in touch back. Most likely, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at JTFpod. And finally, if you wish to watch this interview, the full interview will be going up on our YouTube channel, Just Effects with Alex Zane. If you subscribe to that and you like watching your interviews rather than having them in your ears, then you can do that. It's the full interview every Friday after the podcast is released. Right then, my guest this week is about to release his directorial feature film debut, Small Engine Repair, that he also wrote and stars in 
based on his successful stage production of the same name. A lot of information there. We get into that in the chat. Uh, we find out a little bit about his journey from stage to screen and how this idea for small engine repair has gestated over the years to become this brand new movie. It's about three old friends getting together for a night of drinking and laughter, which suddenly takes a sharp left turn into dangerous territory. And that's all I'm going to say. That is all I'm going to say right now, because I don't think you need to know too much more about it. I certainly watched it without knowing too much, and it's a very exciting, thrilling darkly funny movie and i mean look if you want to watch the trailer that will tell you more but you know maybe just watch the film when it hits cinemas on september the 10th followed by a digital home release in october so we talked about that we talked about him getting behind the camera for the first time we talked about him making the leap from being on the la theater scene into screenwriting working on the jake gyllenhaal film stronger we talked a lot about Italian food and our mutual love of it. I hope you enjoyed the episode. It was a real pleasure having him on the show. So please welcome to Just The Facts, the excellent John Polono. Of course, because it's, uh, it's it's good morning for you. Good morning, Los, Los Angeles. Yes, sir. It's about uh, 10 a.m. here. Okay. That explains the coffee. I like a coffee with my interviews, but... We're nearly at six o'clock here, and I I just won't sleep. I won't sleep, John. It'll keep you up. See, I don't know, man. I don't know if it's being Italian and having an after dinner coffee our whole lot, my whole life. So it just doesn't keep me up. I don't know. Oh yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. I mean, I will have an after dinner coffee. Yeah, you're right. That's a very specific scenario. Yeah, because obviously you got a belly full of food, and I mean, different. And an Italian meal as well. That's, I mean, it, it doesn't have to be, but for me, it's a, it's a lot of carbs. There's a lot of pasta that's going down my throat. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I remember, I found it very surprising. I went, have you, have you been to, have you been to Italy yourself? I have, yes. Do you, do you go a lot? Have you got family there? I do have family there. Um, I, I, you know, man, we were, I was planning on bringing my kids there. Um, and then the pandemic hit, we were sort of gearing up for it. But now when things settle down, I'd like to go back. We have a lot of relatives will come here and visit and, you know, social media, we stay in touch. But uh, my daughter's 16, so she's getting to an age where she's trying to connect more with her roots and uh, always sending me like TikToks of like some villa in Italy. And and we, uh, <laughs> we're talking about going back. Yeah. But uh, I mean, it's uh, yeah. I mean, I loved it. I, I you know, you eat like a king. Yeah, it's it's such good food. It's that weird thing, though, isn't it? Because obviously out there, pasta is is not the main dish. I think here in the UK, and I think maybe in the US as well, like it's the pasta is the main course. But out in yeah. Italy, it's like you have a pasta dish and then you have the meat or fish. Well, it was funny, man. I went out there with my dad when I was like, I think, 20 for the first time. And it had been a while since he went. He was going on business and he brought me and dropped me off. And then I spent about a week and a half with all these cousins. But when I first landed all jet lagged and stuff, they brought out a plate of food and I ate it. And I was like, this is amazing. And there's like 15 adults just watching me because I was the first sort of, you know, uh, of my generation of the family to come over. And I didn't realize they only put one thing on each plate. So I like eat it and they gave me a bunch. But then a new family would come in with their signature dish and their wine. And I mean, I was shit faced and like, I've never (laughs) eaten so much in my life. Uh, within the first like two hours and they're all just kind of staring watching. And it was, uh, it was like you said, cause I was just like, Oh, this is the thing. Uh, yeah. 
It's so good. I mean, the oh, I mean, look, well, we've got other stuff to talk about, but the food yeah. up there is is it's just incredible. I remember I once went to it was off the Amalfi Coast, an island of Capri, and they brought out this like really simple dish, just pasta with this tomato sauce. And I was like, just tell me what's in it because I want to make this at home. And the guy, in, a, in the <laughs> nicest way possible, just went. Yeah, you you cannot make this at home. And I'm like, just tell me what's in it. He's like, these are tomatoes from the soil on the mountain of Vesuvius. This it's because right. of where they come from. It's not like, hey, just pop down to your local supermarket and get some tomatoes. It's where the ingredients are grown. Yeah, no, it's great, man. My uh, my my father's mother, who uh, his mother and father came over from Italy on the boat, but she was the best cook I ever knew. And she, her signature dish, dish was gnocchi, which is a potato pasta, which we grew up with and just took it for granted. And then when she when she died, we were like, oh, shit, that was so good. And never it's been very difficult to find its match because a lot of these things are like peasant foods. I mean, they weren't wealthy villages and they made the best with what they had with like, like you said, simple homegrown ingredients. That's not meant to be like a $90 dish. It's like there's a guy in downtown L.A. There's a restaurant called Macaroni Republic, which to me is like pretty much the best Italian I've had since my grandmother died. My Nona died. And like no dish is over like $17. And it's really within that sort of philosophy of simple, like handmade, but not crazy, trendy, expensive. And it's really good. If you're in L.A., uh, you hit me up. I'll bring you out there. That sounds incredible because, yeah, I mean, it's weird. Like the food in L.A. is is so good because in my head, like when I first went out there, I was like, American food. Okay. So, you know, you got your burgers, your fries to go to LA, especially I think in the last maybe 10, 15 years, the quality of the food and the restaurants there has just exploded. It's like, you can get anything yeah. and the ingredients. It's, it's, it's really amazing. Have you, you've lived there a while now, haven't you? Yeah. I've been here about 20 years and, and I agree with the food on that. I mean, you know, coming from Boston and New York, it didn't have a North end. It didn't have a little Italy. So I couldn't, it took a while to find Italian, but there's, you know, Mexican food here is like amazing. And we live sort of in a Persian area uh, in the Valley, unbelievable uh, Persian and Armenian food, which you just like, I mean, I never had had until I met people who were Persian and when I lived in New York city, you kind of develop a taste for it. So it's LA is kind of spread out. So it's like a little harder to find, but uh you know, and then you go to Boston. It's funny, man. I was just my family in Boston and everyone's hungry and they're like, let's get Mexican. And I'm like, I'm not eating Mexican food in Boston. <laughs> like I can go 10 feet from my house out here and it's like exquisite. You know, you got to know what you have. But LA, I mean, sushi, all that shit you can get here. Oh, by the way, can I swear? Is that bad? I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's fine, man. It's, <laughs> sorry, just, it's just hard not to. And when I'm around adults, because I got, you know, kids, I'm always having to watch my language. I kind of enjoy the freedom. Uh, yeah. So you got to know what you get regionally and, and, and you know, get the right stuff. But. So that, so so you still so you still got family up at that end of the of the the U.S. Boston area as well because uh, I'm right thinking you uh, you grew up in in New England so that that part of yeah. that part of the country. Correct. Uh, yeah, I grew up uh, in Southern New Hampshire, and I got family, you know, a lot in Rhode Island, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, sort of spread out around that area. Mm-hmm. So we just uh, we went back. My my mom recently passed away, and we had her memorial. And we got to see a lot of cousins we hadn't seen, you know, certainly since the pandemic, but even from beyond that. So it was it was, you know, it was bittersweet, but it was great to see people from kind of all over Connecticut, all that stuff kind of getting together. And my mom grew up in uh, at this lake house in uh, Rentham, Massachusetts, and we all hung out there one day. And it was, uh, you know, it was really good to see everybody. All the accents are like so 
Hosh, you know, my, like Rhode Island, New York, fucking New Hampshire. It's like insane, everybody. And uh, I got this aunt from uh, my auntie uh, from uh, Rhode Island, and she's got the thickest accent of anyone I've ever met. And I just like, I love it. Like you grow up and you don't really hear it, and then you leave and you come back, and you're like, oh my God, just, just keep talking. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I, I mean, like I've I've been to the US a few times, but I think my my edu- my education on on that New England accent came from the 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 scene between. Um, uh, Brody and his wife in Jaws, where it's like, get the car, <laughs> you know, down to yeah. the, yeah. Back uh, the car and have it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so s- small engine repair, that is, mm. that's taking you back to, to that part of uh, your life, I, I guess, to a certain extent, because you actually, you actually started writing when you were still living up in in New Hampshire, and you were you were very young when you first, I guess, <clears> caught the bug, fell in love with the idea of if not writing, but being a writer and learning how to become a writer. Yeah, I mean, I won this. It's funny, man. It's like you, you kind of I, I definitely had that itch, but you kind of what you get rewarded for as a kid or you kind of see a certain reaction you like. And, you know, I was very young. I was like in third grade and I won this like young authors award and I wrote this book. I mean, I didn't know any better, but like there was this book I read in the library about a, a raccoon and a kid who had it. And I was like, oh, my God, like I plagiarized like half of it without knowing what it was. And I drew it <laughs> and, I, and I changed it up. But I like I didn't get it. And I won this award. Um, and then but that's definitely I really enjoyed that element of it and having this imagination, drawing pictures. And so I, I always did that. I mean, I didn't really grew up in an area that I, I was exposed to artists per se, or like people who definitely did that for a career. So it was kind of, you know, hidden, I guess a little bit, or, mm-hmm. or I, I, I didn't, it took me a long time to have the balls to say, this is what I want to do and um, find it. And, you know, I had some really key teachers in my kind of smaller town who, who kind of nurtured it in a moment where like, I don't know if they didn't, you know, give me that, response or that support. If I, I don't know, I don't know if I would have ended up doing it. Um, and then reading, I was a voracious reader, especially back at the time. This is obviously pre-internet. So it's like, you actually had to read books. And <laughs> I remember getting obsessed with like Stephen King and like reading everything he did. And then, you know, all that stuff. And always, I, I initially thought I wanted to be like a horror fiction writer. And then I just was always obsessed with movies. I always wanted to be a director and, and then, you know, it just kind of led to it. And then <clears throat> got into theater later when I moved to LA and theater is really what sort of brought me to another level in terms of finding my voice mm-hmm. and figuring out how to, how to tell a story and characters and dialogue and all that stuff. So. It's so interesting. You read a lot of Stephen King I, only because I, I was reading his, um, his sort of semi-autobiography, semi like a guide to new writers, uh, Stephen King on writing. And, yeah, and he, he it's a good book, isn't it? It's a really, yeah. really interesting book. And but he talks about this idea that people people often say, Yeah, I want to be a writer. And he's like, Well, do you read? And they're like, I don't have time for reading. He's like, if you don't read books, you can't be a writer. Like the one thing you have to do to be able to learn like the craft of writing is to read books. No, I mean it's totally true. I think. You know, I find, you know, writing as a career, it's harder to just read for pleasure sometimes. And, you know, uh, it when you do, when you when you get into a book, it just gets you thinking a certain way. It gets it just sort of gets the juices flowing. And then, mm. you know, I know when I when I don't do that for a bit, it, it kind of throws me off. And, and, you know, watching movies as well, obviously, and and things like that. But there's like passive watching where you can just kind of 
kick back and kind of watch it. And then you watch stuff where it's like digs into you mm-hmm. and it kind of changes and you're like, Oh shit, I, I didn't think about that. So yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it's like exercise, you know, you, uh, for me, it's like, I have a, you know, weight set and, and stuff in the, in the garage. And like, I try to work out consistently, but there's those nights where I get the fucking kids to sleep. I'm finally at time. It's like nine 30. I'm like, it's the last thing I want to do. And then in my head, I'm like, every time I work out, I'm always happy. I do always, <laughs> I feel better during after and the next morning and i'm like you idiot but then i'm like right before sometimes you just you you wuss out and i'm like why do you think so it's the same kind of thing i'm like if i pick up a book and get 10 pages in and just start itching for it it's better than picking up the phone and messing around or checking yeah. you know social media doing all that stuff it just it, it it gets the you know the muscles going so to speak yeah it does although that is that is very impressive if you sometimes do physically work out lasting at night that's that's incredible i can't imagine like ever ever wanting to do that i mean like i i i think i made the mistake i i, I once very briefly had a personal trainer and it was fine but he used to talk all the time and i hadn't exercised ever and he'd be asking me questions and i'd be just like struggling for breath like having to answer these questions and in the end i just packed it in so he was he was not a good trainer is what i'm saying that's like that's like the equivalent of the dentist when they ask you questions when they got all that shit in your mouth and they're like what do you want me to do (laughs) so before you got to la um and, and and became part of the LA theater series. I, I want to talk to you about because I find that quite interesting as someone who spent a bit of time in LA. But were you writing screenplays before then? Have you did you sort of did you have a before sort of starting to write for stage? Were you yeah. sort of like practicing the, the 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 craft of screenwriting? Yeah, I mean, I think I went the typical route. I loved movies, but I didn't really understand the construction of them. And then I, you know, right after I graduated college, I lived in Colorado for about a year and a half in like a trailer park. And then this other little cabin with my girlfriend at the time. And I wrote some uh, fiction, some nonfiction and maybe one of the worst screenplays ever written. (laughs) Go on. What was (laughs) it about? I think. You know, you look at uh, Stephen King, for example, and and he's a type of writer who openly admits like he doesn't outline. He's not a structuralist. He has an idea and he lets those characters go. And, you know, uh, some writers do that. And you hear even like Tarantino, who obviously I love very much, talks about sometimes he gets the character so sharply realized that they start telling the story. And, you know, I kind of went that route initially and, you know, it just was terrible. And then I moved to New York City with a couple of guys I had met. I did a summer exchange at NYU. It's pretty much like all I could afford. I was in state at UNH. You pay the UNH, you know, you go there for and your credits transfer or whatever. And I took this like compressed I think it was like two semesters worth of filmmaking, the sight and sound class for the whole summer. And I mean, and it changed my life. It was the sort of biggest epiphany I ever had going from, you know, um, creative writing classes and, and sort of being around, you know, college kids to being around like people who wanted to make films, who saw films, who had the reference level that I was creating and, you know, and, and diverse people from all over, all, all different economics and all over the world and, and just countries I had never known anyone from. I mean, it was incredible. Like my brain popped open. So I met some, some people there that I really clicked with. And then I ended up moving to New York and we, you know, wrote screenplays and, and made short films and did all that stuff together. And I kept writing these screenplays and thought, you know, here's the plan, move out, move out to LA. And I got a job uh, in the mailroom at Castle Rock Entertainment and I continued to write screenplays and I got to know a guy in development and I give him a script and, and he'd get coverage on it. And the coverage would be like, you know, there's some cool moments in this, but like, 
I know this is your friend, but like, why is a 26 year old writing this derivative Raiders of the Lost Ark shit? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I was writing movies about movies. You know, they were very derivative and, 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 oh, I loved, you know, Indiana Jones. Let me create my Indiana Jones or whatever, do all that. And it just, it just wasn't clicking. And then there's this guy, uh, a buddy of mine, one of my first friends in LA, this guy, Phil Santani, he's really funny dude. He's like in the mail room. Mail room's like a whole subculture at this place. And he was taking an acting class. And I was like, uh, I'd done some acting at NYU just in the short films. And I was like, this is kind of fun. So I started taking, this acting class uh, with Laura Gardner. And uh, I mean, and that changed my life because they, they, you do scene studies, uh, you study a scene, but you have, and they don't give you movies or TV. They give you plays. So you read, you know, you get this little booklet and you got to read the whole play to know your, the context of your scene. And I just started reading, like, I mean, I'd been to one play before that. I was kind of a Philistine with that. I mean, I just was <laughs> never exposed to it, you know? Yeah. And I just started reading these plays and it like, I was like, holy shit, I've never seen, I've never experienced writing like this. And I just devoured all of them. And and then, you know, that really started writing one act plays, monologues, plays and stuff like that. So it was really being part of that community and then seeing how the scenes are deconstructed as an actor and then that lending itself to the writing and all that. And really just, it was like an epiphany. It was no longer writing derivative material that was like about movies. It was like being in it and saying, Oh, from an actor's point of view, from a staging it, from all that, this is what it is breathing that and how a line of dialogue you're sort of arming the actor with the ability to propel the story and the theme and do all that stuff. And I mean, look, being an English major, it clicked with me. Cause like you're in uh, you know what it is, is you, there's so much you, you know, write an 11 page paper, on heart of darkness you know what i mean about mm-hmm. do the marxist reading of heart of darkness or whatever and you pull a lot of it out of your ass because <laughs> you know you're finding the image systems and all this stuff and it's cool but a lot of that is to sort of have teaching you how to think and how to run with an idea um which most likely the writer was like i want to tell a cool story and they have their intent and if they create you know good art has multiple interpretations, but to be in there and start writing stuff and being like, okay, I'm going to write a line or a scene and this is my meaning of it. And let's see what the actor does. And and then it's up. And then, you know, seeing that immediate feedback, look, when you write a, a, when you write a movie, be the best script ever written may sit on a shelf for years, Hmm. best case scenario. You're, you're not going to sit in an audience with it for a year and a half. Or there could be a pandemic and you've never seen an audience. <laughs> when you write theater, whether it's for your class or for an audience, you get that immediate feedback and you start. For me, it was like starting learning how to write for an audience, not a theoretical audience, but an audience there in terms of engaging them. And then you put shit up and some of it dies. Some of it works. It's probably a lot like I know you have a background in stand up comedy. I found that interestingly enough, I found comics inspirational to me throughout my career and in particular for small engine repair in terms of finding the hard truths in that edge where to not lose like how far can i go Hmm. like to me great stand-up comedy makes the audience uncomfortable sometimes Hmm. it's not just like hey let's laugh together it's like hey let's laugh and sometimes i'm gonna turn it at you and you're like oof Hmm. you sometimes the best comedy i've seen you get a little sick yeah. Not just because they're going to look at you and say shit about you, but you're like, oh, wow, that's true. And it resonates. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So a, a lot of that sort of temporal art form really informed me in terms of my voice as a writer and then tapping into your truths, because it's like I can't, you know, 
instead of having to imagine what a character, let me find something that I feel strongly about that, that, that beats for me. And then, you know, and then obviously you can't put two actors on stage without having subtext and conflict, you know, can't have two actors who wants to watch a fucking movie or a play with people kind of getting, they like kind of get along. Kind of agree. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the only yeah. time two characters should agree is if there's like aliens outside the door with like machine guns, then it's like, yeah. there's a conflict. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. therefore you have to. And I, I think what was interesting for me in terms of my background and where I came from and being around so many people and trying to absorb that is to really look at any specific issue and not be didactic about your writing. Be like, Go to messy, uncomfortable places. So that 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 was part of that wonderful period of time. And theater's always been that for me. And then, like I said, reading. I mean, I remember the first time I read Death of a Salesman. I was like, holy shit! Like, <laughs> you know, I think it was assigned to me in high school, and I just pretended I read it. You know what I mean? But then when you read it, you're like, what the fuck? Maybe you need a little more life experience. I don't know. And then, like, so, great, yeah, just great writers uh, just really changed my life. And you, and and so in terms of like. In terms of like the extremes, I guess, that you can explore and that you can push uh, the writing on stage. And then are you saying that you by, by seeing the immediate reaction an audience gets, you can find sort of where, where the line is? I guess perhaps that applies more to stand up comedy. I remember, you know, Chris Rock was talking about it in a lot of detail about why he banned phones at gigs, because it's like stand up is one of the few environments where you have to. You, you don't get the opportunity to rehearse behind closed doors. You are rehearsing yeah. in front of an audience and, you know, to try stuff out, to find that line, you do push and push and push. And sometimes that pushing can be uncomfortable. And does the same thing apply to writing for stage as well? Are you learning where the line is potentially not in terms of extremity so much as stand up because you're not playing for the laugh always, but in terms of how far you can take an idea. Yeah. I mean, for sure. Now, Initially, what attracted to me to theater was that it was a fearless place. And, you know, we started a theater company. You know, that's why I met my wife in that class. We started a theater company, having then starting to produce plays. And it was very much the audience would sit down, the lights would go down and it would be like, challenge me. Like, I want to talk about this. Disturb mm -hmm. me. Provoke me. Let's think. Because the, the fact that you wrote a play, that you're performing a play and we're all sitting here together means that we are inquisitive to the nature of the world and we're open to ideas. So it's not propaganda, but mm -hmm. let's, let's get challenged. Like if <laughs> I have, I never had any interest in the audience that I sort of came up around in seeing a play that just regurgitated a safe belief system they already had. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's always like push it. Now, sometimes it can be comedy, but it should be like, refreshing and, and zig and zag and, and not just always edgy or whatever. I mean, I've written a lot of different plays, but it was always like the IQ goes up and I, you know, I have a lot of sisters. I always try to write for the smartest woman in the room because I know them and that's who I love and that's who shaped me. So having that challenge, I was always like, how much can you, how complex of a theme and an idea can you put out there? You know, I never, you know, writing a play or a movie that you're like, war is bad. Like, OK, you know, finding some other nuance truth that will be truthful and honest and complicated enough that you can get your own meaning out of that. And that was sort of what the, what was so exciting about it. And again, it's to go to stand up comedy. If you're sitting in there and you're watching, you know, Dave Chappelle you probably are ready to be like, all right, we're going to explore some shit. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I may not agree with all of it, but I'm along mm-hmm. for the ride. And that's part of the fun. You know, like you don't go to like some spicy ethnic food if you're like, I don't like spice. It's like, stay home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that's yeah, why yeah, you're yeah, here. Yeah. And, and that was the idea of, of it. So you want to, and the people will be disappointed if they weren't like, uh, you know, leaning forward or have some mm-hmm. sort of visceral reaction and, you know, experimenting with that form with a lot of plays and, and stuff I had written in terms of, to me, it was always like, how emotionally true can you get? I mean, you're breathing the same air as the, as the actors and, and you're, you're living in that. I, I think in live theater very often, if it's funny, it's even more funny. If it's scary, it's scary. It's even more emotional because it is so communal. So you have to, I mean, you can't hold back. Um, well, let's talk about specifics because um, it was uh, it was uh, it began life as a play, um, yeah. small engine repair. In I think it was twenty eleven, it debuted in um, in in Los Angeles. And, and what I was going to say, and this is this is more to do with my ignorance. Um, I, I've often thought of uh, Los Angeles as you know the 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 hub of TV and film. That's sort of what it's known for, Hollywood. But there is actually a, there, there is quite a thriving theater scene in LA that people don't often reference, perhaps as much as when you know, as a tourist, especially like oh, New York, Broadway, off Broadway, you get that, but you don't think about LA in those respects. I mean, certainly, and that's something LA has struggled with. But LA has a thriving theater community. I mean, it's there's a different support mechanism in New York, having done a lot of plays there that, you know, you jump in a cab, you go to a play, you go to a movie. There's just an ease of fluidity of the city. LA is more spread out, but LA has the, has the biggest community of actors anywhere on earth, you know, incredible actors. And most actors uh, will all tell you that, you know, you go on a set of most TV shows or movies even, and it's like, Hey, pick up that 30 pound weight. And you're like, okay, you go to theater and it's like, dude, pick up that 500 pound weight every <laughs> night. You're, it's like you're really pushing it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a great theater scene. It has its challenges for sure. But um, and it, I know it's weird because, like, I lived in New York and I never even went to a play. And then I moved to L.A. and I get involved in the scene. But, it, you know, it has its challenges, but it's it's thriving. I mean, I've seen some great plays here. And, and you know, that's sort of changed over the past, you know, 10, 15 years is that LA is no longer considered like, you know, what is going on there? Um, you know, there's, there's, it has some danger of being like a showcase sometimes where you have a bunch of actors who are like actor driven theater companies who are like, Hey, let's put this play together so we can get agents to come and cast directors. And, you know, there's always that element of it, but you know, the, the, the people I know who have the greatest longevity in, in L.A. theater, it's like they do it because they love the play. It's like build it and they will come. I mean, I, you know, and, and by the way, I've done those plays, too, where I was like, oh, my God, this would be good. It never really works out that way. Typically, you just got to do it because you love it. And and people will go, you know, it's it's a little it's definitely I you know, my first time I did a play in New York, I was like, holy shit, these audiences are huge. They're like pulsating to go see a play they're like great um those audiences exist in la it's just more spread out and it's more like provincial like they're going to go to their neighborhood like it's hard to if you do a play downtown it's hard to get west siders out there and stuff like that but you know it keeps it keeps uh going along and and i'm always surprised uh you know it doesn't the reputation has been building i've seen some unbelievable plays um start from out here and, and the talent uh is is incredible uh it's just like i said working on that that whole thing i wish there was a better public transportation system so people could uh <laughs> i was gonna say i mean look you i mean you touched on it man i i i love parts of la i i, I 
I like Silver Lake a little bit because it feels like a little center. But I guess there are those kind of centers dotted around LA, like where you can sort of walk out of a building and there's like more than one restaurant within like a, an Uber ride away. But I see, I just, uh, I think it's, is it the 101 that goes from Santa Monica into West Hollywood? I sat in that for three hours in an Uber last time I was there. I was like, how, how has this city got such wide roads? And like, it's just uh, like, it's crazy the amount of time no, you spend in cars. I'm not going to lie. I mean, the traffic is one of the things I hate the most about LA. There's no question. Mm. I mean, you just time it, yeah. <laughs> you time it, you, you, you know, you time it, you make it work. It's more of a car culture. You know, I love my truck. I'll drive it. Like it's to me, it's like, I get a great radio, comfortable seats. It's like driving a couch and uh, <laughs> you know, man, I get, you know, I get some peace. I listen to my music or a podcast or whatever. So, I, I mean, I don't mind. You mm. just have to build in the time, but you know, it's not, it's not as easy I mean, you can't get fucked up and jump in a cab and go and then be like, go, let's go out to eat and not worry about it and stuff like that. There, you know, it's definitely more complicated. Yeah, but, I know. You, know, you get used to it. You find your neighborhood, you find your Trader Joe's, you find your bullshit, and then you just kind of orbit around that. It's true. And I, I shouldn't moan because like, actually Uber saved my experience of L.A. because before Uber came along, I think there were like maybe three cabs in L.A. Yeah, and like, <laughs> just like you're like standing on the street going, I actually don't know how to get back to my hotel. This is nuts. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about um, small engine repair, repair because that was uh, that that kind of that kind of hit big. It had great reviews and uh, it was a very popular um, play. And it's something that I believe a lot of your work is influenced by your upbringing in, in, in New Hampshire, uh, this being one of them. And mm -hmm. How did you feel when it sort of it landed so well with people? Was there something about it that you felt? I guess, I guess the bottom line is, were you surprised, right? Or, or was it like, I know this is, I know this is good, and I know this has got something in it that I, I'd be more surprised if people didn't come out and and get this and understand this. I've kind of given up on anticipating what people like. I know how to connect to an audience. I know they will like it. But in terms of the, I mean, I, I you just, you never know. Mm -hmm. um, so this was a little different. Having done some sort of main stage sort of primetime plays, this is part of a late night series that my wife was at the time was the producer. I think she still is, although everything's kind of frozen at the moment, but she produced these late night shows. And what the late night shows were, were typically more adventurous and, you know, small engine repair was, I was like, let me just write it using references. I know, <laughs> you know, I, I kind of outlined the story. I just kind of wrote it and those characters were sharp in my mind. And that was sort of like the one or two times in my career that that sort of Tarantino approach worked where I had a story loosely etched out and then I created these characters and they just sort of started to lead it. But what I took off was I took off the filter and I said, let me kind of use all of the sort of theatrical tools that I had learned in previous plays. One, you know, and then the necessity of it. But so anyway, it was late night, starts at 1030. There was a play, uh, Cormac McCarthy had this play, Sunset Limited, this two-hander that takes place before. It's like a dilapidated urban apartment. So you've got to use their light scheme. You got to use their soundboard and their set. You can fuck with the set, but you can't like change it. So it was his apartment. So I was in there and I had this idea and I was watching the play, which I love the play. And I was just like, oh, shit, maybe that idea I had would work low stakes. And then I wrote this play, got this guy, David Maurer, who was like the technical director, was like really good with sets and being pragmatic. And he figured out a way to like, OK, let's put pegboards here. Let's roll in a couple lawnmowers. 
director I had worked with at the time, this guy, Andrew Block, was like, okay, it's cool, let's read. And then we got, uh, you know, and, and, and because of the necessities of lights up and lights down, you had to have uh, uh, no real scene changes. I mean, you could do them, but then it's like so complicated. Like, you know what I mean? You just, so I was like, let me create a master scene for a play lights up, you know, 70 minutes lights down. That's it. A little bit of sound cues, but nothing too complicated because we got one person running the light board. We got a stage manager. You know what I mean? You got to keep the budget low Mm. in order to do it. So therefore when it is that thing, I mean, look, it's similar to the movie. You keep the budget tight enough that you don't have to make those artistic compromises. Mm. And then you roll the dice and see how it goes. And the the biggest thing I learned from that, and look, we didn't have time for previews. We didn't have any of that. You know, John Bernthal, who was in like one of the first readings, who was like, everything started to click. And he's like, I want to do this. And he was in between Walking Dead seasons. I think I'm allowed to tell you, but like, so he, he got into a little trouble with the law that like, he wasn't allowed to leave the city. And he, uh, so he's like, what the fuck am I going to do? So we did this play. And a couple other buddies, Michael Redfield, this other guy, Josh Hellman, who was in the Pacific with John. We all kind of went together. We read it. We were all like, oh, shit, how are people going to react? I don't know. Now, some of these late night plays, we did Bingo with the Indians by Adam Rapp. Look that one up. I mean, they're super off the wall and fucked up and like, holy shit, crazy stuff. You know, Bingo with the Indians has a scene where these two, this guy uh, deflowers a man. Uh, he has sex with him. And then the guy. He, he takes some of the blood from his, his ass and he wipes it on his chest across him. And it's like super erotic, crazy, inappropriate. I mean, you're like, holy shit, I can't believe it. It's so over the top. And But it's 1030 at night. Audience is like, cool, let's do this. And then there were other, you know, just crazy shit. So I was like, all right, I, I don't have to hold back. I can do this thing. But like I said, no previews. We're changing in the hallway. We're going on and then we open and we're like, I don't know. We don't know how people will react. We know we're like our friends will dig it, but let's put it out there because the material was provocative, but also, so to me, it was always like. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I know what this is about, and I know what it's trying to say, but it's not going to spoon-feed it. You know what I mean? It'll work beat by beat, but I know what I want to say about this, about being a father, about being from an environment where you straddle two worlds, about women. And, I, you know, again, in the, in the play was different than the, the movie in the sense that there were no women in the play. They were just spoken about. But I was like, how can I honestly, how can I tell a feminist story unfiltered the mm. way guys are maybe when women aren't in the room, at least where I am from, and, and have it be about that? but not wrapped in a little bow, have it about that. And like, be like, let's fucking talk about this and create something like my favorite art, which is like, Oh shit. I never, you know, there. So all the breadcrumbs are laid out in the, in the play and in the movie, meaning like you could write a 12 page uh, term paper on the feminist aspects of it. And I lay it out. And to me, what is like borderline gratuitous detail, but you know, you never know. So I, I put all those pieces in there. We did it. And then, yeah, people just responded and they got it. And I mean, I think the great thing about the theater community, especially in L.A., is that, you know, we had actors, we had uh, transgender actors who were part of our community sitting next to like firemen and cops and some of Bernthal's like friends, the fighters who'd never been to a play before. And it had this community and people were drinking and having a good time. And look, by the way, you walk on and you sit down like you ain't leaving. Once the lights come up, you can't leave you're stuck. So we had them, but people really got it. And I think that was the most rewarding thing is people understood the intent and they, everyone had their own takeaway, but it was like, no question. It was this visceral communal experience. So we started having to put in extra seats and filling up that like 65 seat house. And then we moved to the main stage and then we're, you know, it's a 99 seat theater and we're setting up all these other seats. It became like a thing that, and I think because, you know, what happens is look, you can make a Big Mac and everybody likes it. You know what I mean? But if you make something, and this is true, I think for a lot of art forms, you know, you do punk rock and you're gonna be like, I saw this awesome punk rock. Oh, Andy, you don't like that kind of music. You won't go. But, but Jesse, oh, you'll fucking love this. You know what I mean? So you start planting a flag and making a bold statement. You eventually start creating the, the audience that gravitate towards it. And we just started to, to, to snowball and do that. And the theater community was, unbelievable, unbelievably supportive. And, you know, especially at that time, it was like adventurous. It was like punk rock doing it. And then we ended up moving to some other stages and then to New York and, you know, yada, yada, yada. But, but those first few performances, we were definitely like, oh shit, what do we have? Because you're very naked when you're in a play, uh, in a new play, you just kind of don't know what you have, especially something like this, which, I mean, we really went out on a limb and, and I think the material is very much, it's not pandering an audience at all. It's like, mm-hmm. You know, so what's funny about what we do with the play and not the movie as much, but in the play, there's some very, and you, again, maybe this is, this is very similar to stand-up comedy is that you set the tone early. It's the kind of humor you're going to be in for tonight, ladies and gentlemen. And you kind of like, Oh shit, that's where we are. Then you start lowering the defenses. So like 30 minutes into this play, you're like, I'm one of the guys. I get it. This is the rules. This is the language. It's like, here's the reality of this play. And you kind of, you, you get what it is. So 
once you have that, then the challenge becomes as an audience is like, okay, how can I subvert it even further? How can I continue to go? So it was really kind of that whole communal thing. Uh, I know I'm kind of going on and on and on. It was terrifying, but it was very exciting to sort of get that. And then, you know, moving to New York was a similar uh, experience in terms of having audiences uh, discover it and see it in, in, you know, that, that mix of audiences. And, you know, that to me, that's what a certain type of art should be that way, you know? And was there a difference in the reception it got in, in, in New York because uh, of the difference in the theater community there? Um, I mean, New York audiences, you know, it, and the play continued to evolve and in rehearsals. And then Joe Bonnie came on as a director in New York, mm. who is like one of my mentors and my favorite frequent collaborators. And, you know, the play shaped through LA with all the actors and then it continued to shape New York audiences. Most of the revisions had to do with timeline, actually, like the logic of it. They're they're They listen in a different way. I mean, granted, it was drunk, rowdy, late night L.A. audiences, but the New York audiences required a, a deeper logic mm. to some of the things. You know what I mean? Mm. Like what day of the week is it? What is it? And then, you know, the, the artistic director would be like, you know, uh, here's a like in the previews or whatever. The audiences were confused about what day did this happen and this happened the timeline. Well, if she's you know, if this happens to her here, how it is. So I had to really chisel that out a little more, which was interesting. Mm. Um, you know, the advantage of the LA plays on the variety of stages is they were much more intimate. So when, when things go haywire, you're, you're in closer proximity to it. And in New York, you know, some of the staging is broader. So I was concerned, well, how much of this is like the magic trick of you're just like, Holy shit, I can't go anywhere. Mm. But fortunately it really translated very, very well. Um, a little more Brechtian, a little more, uh, you know, separate from from the proceedings so maybe it lost a little of that but it gained it in terms of what i felt joe really harnessed the theme in a really beautiful way and and in a way that actually both those directors especially informed not only my performance but the theme of the of the of the material Mm -hmm. and and that she kind of did and and you know joe has a couple of you know what she does in her plays which is so brilliant she creates a couple of sort of frozen static images that tell her story very subconsciously, you know, the play is a movement. And then you'll have a couple of moments that really say what it is. And I thought that was a great takeaway. Um, yeah. And- but the, I mean, the New York audiences were, I, I think by like the fifth performance, we started to have that phenomenon where you get the audience that's going to like it, you know? Yeah. Let's uh, take a little detour because I obviously, you know, we're going to be talking about the film that was based on this play. Like you say, it has changed uh, somewhat from the play. But before then, it was uh, it was your screenwriting that took off. It's taking off the right word because off the back of the play, you, I, I'm guessing, started to have meetings with exec studios and and follow a, a screenwriting path from the writing um, yes. on Small Engine Repair. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, a small edge repair got me my best acting gigs pretty much, which was great, but not enough to sort of support a family and, you know, do that. And, and you know, I, I, I've always been primarily a writer and the small edge repair sort of became a hit around the time when the industry started to be more open minded to seeing other writing samples and actually wanting other writing samples beyond 
just a screenplay. So the play became the calling card for the beginning part of my career until I had racked up a couple of, you know, scripts and stuff. So they would read that and be like, oh, this guy can do, you know, this or that. Uh, um, and, and like now play, I was sort of the big, it felt like it was the beginning of the industry really appreciating playwrights in terms of other mediums. Mm-hmm. Now it's like the, the, uh, you know, TV industry is filthy with playwrights. Um, <laughs> It, rightfully so, because um, you're, you know, it's a certain skill set that you got to do. I mean, not all everyone makes the transition, but there's a certain skill set uh, that is nurtured in that. So that the play was, yeah, getting me a lot of meetings and a lot of stuff and, and then started to get some material. And then it was really sort of stronger, which was mm-hmm. just worked out because, you know, it just clicked. And then uh, one of the producers on that, Scott Silver, um, sort of has been doing this for a long time. And he was like, kind of helped mentor me through that process of writing a studio movie. And he and I have written a bunch of shit together since then. It was a gr- beginning of a really great uh, sort of creative partnership. But, you know, that that sort of was the big thing that took it to a whole other level. So Small Engine Repair, how did it initially come about? The idea, the opportunity, I guess, is the word to take it to the screen and and also i guess was it always a definite thing that you wanted to direct it because obviously you've written it you star in it and you're directing it and this is your feature debut as a director was right. there a point where you were like that seems like an awful lot to be taking on or did you feel so familiar with your your material that you were like i'd be a, a freaking nightmare if i had someone else directing me in in this I mean, I think if it came down to it, I would have directed it as opposed to be in it. But just to back up. So John Bernthal, who has become not only a dear friend, but like a real creative collaborator and a bunch of stuff. So we sort of met in that. And we were always like, we could, we should make this new movie. We should do it. It was always like something we always chatted about. I mean, he was instrumental in moving it to New York. And, you know, he and I have a whole, you know, Jesus, like a dozen projects going on at this point. But this was always one that we were like, I mean, therefore was the time is like, let's fucking co-direct it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we were all, we're so fluid, he and I, in terms of our collaboration that like that could have worked, but it became, you know, more and more of a reality, not only as his career took off and as I got more, and then things just started to click. It had stops and starts over the years. And then it kind of happened at, well, not really the right time in terms of a fucking pandemic, but in terms of thematically and, and how it, places itself in a contemporary moment it worked out but you know look it's easier to do an indie movie that's predominantly one location there's all that stuff uh you know it's an acting uh uh, piece so it was all that stuff that i was like i knew played to my to my strengths and i mean quite frankly to roll the dice and take a risk i was like i don't know when i'll have this opportunity again let me just kind of go all in on it and having played the character so much and being, you know, sitting at it, I, I just kind of knew it. And, and to be honest, I felt as my first time directing, I'm like to be in it, to be like sort of the the thermometer in the bathwater while directing. I was like, it, it all just kind of clicked. The whole apparatus of the filmmaking was designed around this very unique situation and opportunity in terms of what it was. So I was, terrified by it but i was always like well fuck it if i'm gonna roll the dice i might as well you know go all in you know what i mean like when are you ever gonna get this opportunity again 
I mean, yeah, I, it, sound, it sounds like the right thing to do. I, I will say at this stage, I was going to sort of explain uh, a little about the story of the film myself, but I think actually because there's, a, there's some big stuff that happens in it, and I, I don't want to blunder into spoiler territory here and end up, you know, ruining sure. uh, a, a, a huge turning point uh, in the movie. So I thought I, I'd let you uh, give us an idea uh, of what... Uh, small engine repair is about, and then I then I have some questions about how it might have changed from what it was in 2011. Absolutely. So, you know, it's a the movie uh, is you know it's about these three childhood friends who are sort of bonded over their love for uh, my character's teenage daughter, who they were kind of helped raise in this sort of rougher working class neighborhood. And you know, it's about sort of. As, as she reaches a point where she's becoming a woman, things get more complicated. And then they're all kind of put to this sort of test of, of their friendship and their love. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it enters some really tense territory. And because these are, look, these are not like, you know, accountants. These are guys who are quick to get into a fight and they're rough. So they're already living on the sort of a, 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 a that level, you know, that physical sort of visceral level. And, uh, but to me, it's like, it's like a family drama with like super dark comedy in it with a, with like a very sort of biting social commentary to it. That's sort of how I, I looked at it and, and, you know, a character piece, an actor's piece, but to me, it's about this sort of highly unconventional family and, and just dealing with some, you know, issues that I was always, I'm always trying to work out and I wanted to reflect them in all their messiness. And I mean, like, I don't think it's a spoiler to, to say that the, the film uh, addresses, you know, the subject of toxic masculinity to a, a, a certain extent. And I mean, I think people's awareness and society's awareness in the last 10 years about this uh, and about the issues around this and about it being a problem. I think that's changed. I think people are more aware now than possibly they were in 2011. And so right. in that respect, has have did you have to look back at what you'd written and go, okay, well, some of this is going to have to change because it, it is, it's now more uh, commonplace or at least more in the, at the front forefront of people's minds than it, it was when I first wrote it. I mean, I definitely agree with that. But to me, it was always like, like I don't think, this particular class of guys has been examined very often with such sort of raw honesty. Mm. And I think a lot more of the country is like this than is reflected in pop culture. Certainly in theater, I haven't hadn't seen a lot of, you know, working class New Englander type that aesthetic. Um, you know, I think toxic masculinity has has become a lot more uh, of a common used word. I mean, it's not like it was running through my head. I just said, I want to be honest about this, about the conflict mm -hmm. and about the pitfalls and the, and the ugliness, as well as the beauty of this camaraderie and, you know, art, uh, drama and art is conflict. So inevitably that's going to go there. Um, you know, I, I felt with the Me Too movement coming out, uh, it was a great opportunity to really look at the material through that lens and, and see what's going on, that sort of reckoning, which... The, you know, the play has always sort of dealt with that. I have grown up around a lot of women, as I said, and, and, and you know, I listen, I was no stranger uh, to hearing and experiencing, you know, that point of view my whole life and, and kind of felt like having a foot in both worlds, both having a very open communication with really strong women who had had 
difficult situations in their life, but then also being like grown up in an environment where it was very, you know, difficult to express emotions and do that and, and be more of a tough guy. So I, I kind of like felt in between those two worlds. And that was those collision is, is ultimately what the play was about. But then when me too came out, I was like, Oh wow, here's an opportunity. Not me too came out, but you know what I mean? Mm. When we started to have more awareness of that is like how to add to that conversation in a different way and how to harness what's working in the play and contemporize it. And, and, and the biggest transition from the play to the movie was the inclusion of these female characters who are very strong and as flawed and as, as sort of vibrant as, as anybody else. And, and having that breathe that life and have that, that statement, which, you know, again, when I say I made what I felt is like a hyper-masculine unfiltered material for women, because this is my movie that says I've been listening to you, you know, my whole life. And here's a point of view of it. That's not uh, a fairy tale. It's like showing the complexity of these situations of, you know, of all of these myths that we hear of, you know, the, the, the father with a shotgun thing, the, you know, the, the taken the, the Liam Neeson revenge, you know, subverting that as well as, you know, what, what, how much of, of misogyny is in, is in humiliation and all of this stuff and really kind of packing it in there and, and putting these images and these ideas there that like, I know the women in my life who would be like, okay, at least I hope is that I'm understanding that through, through this very unconventional cast of characters and talk about, I mean, the whole thing is really revolving around all of these men and it's all dictated by their relationship with women and, and sort of the and instead of toxic masculinity, I would almost say like sort of the 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 the, the masculine and the feminine inside of each one of us and whichever one is sort of dominating in a, any given moment. And, and, and that like constant struggle of, of where it is. But like I thought with the Me Too movement, it was like finally, oh, wow. Um we have to listen to women, you know, wow, this is what it is. And it's like, well, shit, they've been saying this all along if you've been listening, so to speak. Uh, anyway, that, that was sort of, as, as I mean, even talking about it, it's so emotional and complicated that I just felt the only way to really address that was to create an emotional and complicated and provocative uh, situations. Basically. It's, um, it, 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 uh, it's really, it's, it's such, it's a great film, by the way. I don't know if Thank I've you. said that yet. I, I really loved it. And I, no, I found it. Maybe I did. Sorry. So much. <laughs> <laughs> but I found it, I found it very exciting to watch for uh, one of the reasons you, you just touched on that. And actually I, I thought about it a little bit when you were, you were saying, uh, you know, with the with the opening of the the play, you'd sort of really let people know what they were in for with this play. You'd sort of go, "This is what you're in for. This is the kind of humor. This is a this is this is your introduction to our world." And I don't think I I, I could probably, if I thought about it a little harder, think of movies that had a, a similar representation of guys uh, on screen. But I don't think I've seen that working class New England before. And it, it sort of it, it was a, a really exciting journey to sort of go to get to know these guys. And I think at the start, it was a little bit of a shock. I was like, I don't have a I don't have a cinematic reference point for yeah. these people, which isn't a bad thing in this day and mm. age, you know, <laughs> with cucky cut yeah. movies still being made every day. You're like, fuck. I'm gonna. I'm I'm sitting up now. I want to know who these guys are. I want to understand this relationship, and it's it's abrasive. And it's sort of scary, but it's also really funny at the same time. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I had a uh, a, a, a 
a girlfriend from the UK early on and she was great, but so smart, so educated in such a filthy mouth. And I was <laughs> like, it reminded me of New England where people swear so much, or there's just those characters. Like you'll have a grandma who'll be like, I'll put the fucking toilet seat down. Like, you know, like these really strong characters. So you know, I definitely <laughs> yeah. amplified it in terms of that, but more it was like the device of these guys. Who are the last people who would maybe have this sort of epiphany or how can we experience it through their eyes? I mean, there's no movie if these guys are educated and well-balanced and all that stuff. And, you know, whatever happens, happens. They're like, okay, well, here's the healthy way to deal with it. It was seeing that stumble through. And, and, you know, I, I think, I mean, I know a lot of guys like this and, you know, it's, what's been interesting is in doing the play, you would have a lot of people come up to me from Australia or whatever and be like, Oh my God, my dad has a, has a, has a shop like that in Australia. My, uh, that's my uncle. That's my mother. She's tough as nails. She has it. You know what I'm saying? Like these communities of people get in one thing that was always interesting to me. So to back up in terms of what I was always surprised with from the reaction of the play and to some extent, the movie, although we haven't had that much due to, you know, the fucking apocalypse, but mm -hmm. the, women um really connected with it emotionally the father-daughter story and what i think we are is i think we're at a moment where women you know maybe in their 30s and their 40s their fathers who they love are old school and they know they love them but they just don't know how to talk way and do it so they get that like i know my dad loves me like our costume designer mia always said that she's like i know my dad would do the same thing and that's real. Is it right? Is it wrong? It's just, it's a real reaction. Like there are those holdovers and there is that fumbling towards the next step of defining what a man, a modern man is. Mm -hmm. So, and another thing that was really interesting is so when we did the play in, in, uh, in New York city, Keegan Allen played the Chad character, the younger dude. And Keegan was like on pretty little lies, a great dude, but he has a fan base. That's like these, like, prepubescent, you know, 11 to 14 year old girls from all over the country and excuse me, all over the world. So you do the show and you come out, it's like me and badge and PJ and, and badge and PJ are like, you know, they're, they're movie stars in their own right. Like people love them, but not these like 12 year old girls, like fucking love Keegan. So I'm talking like, you know, it's like a 350 seat theater, maybe 40 of them at any given night were Keegan fans. So you'd go out and there'd be this big crowd and they'd be screaming as the stage doors open and they'd see me and they'd be like, oh, and I'd walk <laughs> to the side and hang out and like, and then Keegan would come out and he'd sign autographs. But then the moms would come up to me in badge and PJ and they were like, listen, my daughter dragged me to this to, to see Keegan. And she's like five minutes in, I thought this is the worst mistake I ever made because of the language. And then she's like about halfway through, I started to get it. And then she's like, at the end, I mean, it's not like, uh, uh, the, the, the material doesn't exist to teach a lesson per se. It's a little more complicated than that. But they were like, look, give me and my daughter a lot to talk about. And I, I'm really happy about that. And she's like, and not only that, I dated Swaino in high school. I did that. You know what I mean? Like, they're like, I get that guy. Maybe you didn't end up with him, but they get that. The construction of the characters being specific sort of archetypes. Mm -hmm. So they appreciated that honesty. But again, that takeaway of from what it was, which is like, Wow, I'm gonna bring. I'm gonna have a real talk with my daughter, and and you know what I'm saying. Uh, which I've had a little of that with the movie again in the limited screenings we've done. That I've been shocked to see like some friends who brought their kids that were so like have, 15 and they fucking you, loved it. 
And you've watched it with an audience. That was going to, I was going to say, because obviously, like you say, you know, we've been in a very strange time and we're still not fully out of it. But have you had the opportunity to sit down with an audience and, 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 and watch the film? Not in a great way. I mean, we had like uh, two screenings for friends of rough cuts Mm. and I've never had the full final film projected in an audience. We did a drive-in, which was like super low res, you know, the fucking guy running it had like a, you know, you know, like a VCR thing blinking for an hour. And, you know, it was, I was like going out of my mind. I was like, this sucks. I mean, it's like watch it on your phone, but that's the closest we sort of had to a screening and then got to kind of talk communally. I mean, most of it's been, you know, sharing links and that and stuff, which, which is heartbreaking to me because this material, which is comes from a play that is not taken out of context. It's watched communally. Mm. And again, if you're sitting in an audience and you have, you know, a, all different stripes of people and everyone starts laughing together, it's similar to comedy. I think it's like you're giving permission you know, it's like I love it when you watch like a, a comedy special and it's like like a Dave Chappelle or some like edgy. He's like a edgy black comedian and they'll say some joke like making fun of white people. And they'll cut to the white guy in the audience and he's like, well, OK, I, go. You know, I, I love that. So I love that element of like, come on, man, let's all let's call call each other out on their shit, so to speak. So anyway, no, I, I haven't had that that experience uh, in, in full. It's um, and it's but it's 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 also it's it's worth seeing. I I mean I you know I watched it on a link. I'm lucky enough to have quite a big TV, so you know it looked it, it looked good because it, it's a it's a cinematic movie. You have a lot of plays, uh, and this isn't a comment on the quality of these 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 films that uh, were adapted from plays. You've got you know great film like Fencers, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Oh, what was the one with Christoph Waltz in <laughs> Carnage? I think um, that have come from plays and 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 very much feel like filmed plays. But this feels to me like you sort of went. I want to do something where it is slightly more you know using the tools of cinema. I mean, that's a really good way to put it, because, you know, I, I mulled it over and John and I had, you know, countless meals together where it was always like, how do we how, how do we harness what works in the move in the play cinematically? Now, a play is a master scene and your eye goes where it goes. And, you know, part of the the fun in that is like, holy shit, what are they going to do on stage? Where do I look? Do I look over here? I'll miss that. So you're kind of in the moment, whereas a movie, obviously, you're literally directing where it goes. But it was like, how do what works and what what's easier to do on stage is sort of the to build the momentum of the train ride of what's going on. And like, although there's safety and being like, I know they can only do stuff. Sometimes you see a play and there's squibs, there's explosion. There's you never know is, is if you if you if you care about a character enough, you don't want them to get a paper cut in that. But there's still that safety. Now, in a movie, you can do whatever you want now. It was more about, like you said, finding a team that really harnessed it and made it lean into the visceral quality of it. I mean, one of the greatest compliments I got about the play, consistent compliments, was always people were like, I forgot I was watching a play. I just got I got pulled in. Mm -hmm. And so it was trying to do that in a movie a little bit like you're not sure where this is going to go. It's not playing by the rules the way the play didn't play by the rules just to do that. But how do you do that cinematically? And it was, you know, I think, I think the movie is more grounded than the play. Mm. It's the, the humor is thrown away, you know, in the play, there's like, you do it night after night, you plan it. There's, there's moments of humor, there's zingers. It's more, it has a particular musical pattern to it. The movie's 
more, uh, you know, rough about that stuff. So harnessing the movie. I mean, that was a very sort of like analytical conversation that I had a lot of is, is to how to make it cinematic and how to do that. And that, and that lent itself like, look, I knew that the bread and butter of the play as well as the movie was going to be the characters and the acting and the story and everything else sort of had to harness that and flow with that. So I found this great, you know, DP Matt Mitchell Hmm. who who had done uh, uh, documentaries who created a situation where we could, we could do new setups very quickly. So it was always in the moment. It was all that. It's like everything went, went to kind of support that. But in terms of the opening it up and doing that, it was like, you know, a, a good friend of mine, a, a periodic writing partner, like one of my best friends, is guy Kemp Powers, who, who he, his play One Night in Miami was done a year after Small Engine Repair. And he adapted it into a movie. It was a huge hit. He was nominated for an Oscar last year. And he and I always had these conversations. And, you know, his adaptation in some ways was was he went a different way. But his play is his movie is very smart and it's about a movement and it's about social injustices and it's very nebulous huge themes in a way what i did was the other way where i leaned into the visceral life and death struggle which is more cinematic than theatrical Mm -hmm. inevitably the life and death thing you know i mean the tension of that the 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 tightening of the noose is more cinematic Mm -hmm. some of those other adaptations you you describe struggle a little bit in film in my opinion because the crux of the plays and I love the plays are, are thematic. The stakes are not mm. as, is simple and is not as high. So with small edge repair, the movie, it was just ratcheting up the stakes. Mm. I mean, it's a great film. I mean, we, we mentioned John Bernthal, uh, Shea Wiggum is fantastic in it. Uh, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this Ciara, Ciara Bravo, who plays your yeah. daughter, Crystal in it, man. Can she drop an F-bomb well? She is fantastic. She's the best. She's amazing. I mean, the film wouldn't have worked if you didn't have a crystal who you loved and were like, Mm. when she's not on screen, you're like, where did she go? Mm. Um, That's like literally wouldn't have worked without her. She was incredible. And uh, you mentioned earlier uh, from your experience of writing Stronger, which, um, again, I'd recommend if anyone hasn't seen Stronger, it's uh, it's a fantastic film. Jake Gyllenhaal, you work with uh, David Gordon Green on that, who I think you probably uh, have kind of similar sentiments to in terms of as, as a man, he can he can deliver comedy, but also dark comedy, along with some really substantial drama as well. So I, no, can I, see mean, that look, I, I, uh, I shadowed him during the making of Stronger. I mean, he was the, the, the biggest singular sort of film directing influence on me. Um, and I love the guy. I mean, we have a bunch of stuff in the works. He's amazing, but mm-hmm. I, I really watched him on set and I was like, Oh, you can do that. You can between him and, and then Joe Bonnie as a theater director. I mean, th- those two, I like, I think that my roots of a director sprung from, from seeing them work and, and how David creates a set, like the actors, everybody on the set, you don't, you don't feel like you're making a movie. You feel like you're having, you're, you're there. And it's like, Hey, it's about you. Like, let's do it. You know what I mean? It's not that uh, it's not precious. It's just real. And, and one of the films that is constantly being mentioned. And I, I don't know where you are with it at the moment. Uh, Cause it feels like it's been gestating for about two, three years, maybe, which is the, the Hulk Hogan biopic, right. which uh, you're writing with uh, Scott Silver, Todd Phillips yeah. and Chris Hemsworth is set to play Hulk. What's going on? Where are we with that? I mean, look, man, I'm so terrified to say anything about that. I don't know. I can say I would just say it's going. It's it's the material's great. Everybody's great. You know, um, Scott, like I said, we've written a bunch together and and he is just a fucking awesome to work with. And Todd Phillips, who I've gotten to know, they're great. I, listen, it's it's going to be an amazing movie. 
Um, I don't know when. I mean, look, I, I, that's not a movie I think you can make with COVID protocols because, you know, there's wrestling scenes with like, you know, 20,000 people. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't know how that's going to go. But uh, I, I, honestly, I, I, if I was a betting man, I would say it's going to get made and it's going to be a fucking great movie. Yeah, I, you would keep getting drip fed by Hulk Hogan himself going, Chris, Chris Emsworth's in crazy shape for this movie, which seems like, you know, you just sort of go, when is Chris Hemsworth not in crazy shape? That's know, like, right? that's a weird thing. But, but there's yeah. like, there's Marvel muscles and then there's WWF muscles. So I think it's, <laughs> it's a whole other thing. Yeah. I, I, but I imagine it's good having, having Hulk Hogan himself uh, involved in making a biopic of his life. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that guy is like an incredible resource and and not, not afraid to tell uh, all of the, the gory details. And I mean, he's a natural storyteller as all those guys are. It's an incredible world. I mean, yeah. To me. And, um, and and this one seems to have gone away. This is where I ask you for like, but there was a period where you were, uh, cause I know I spoke to Matthew McConaughey and he's like a crazy evil Knievel fan. And I, I remember there was this period where you were writing an evil Knievel movie where with Matthew McConaughey uh, yeah. potentially as the lead. Yeah, no, Scott and I, that was another collaboration we did. It's in a phenomenal script. Um, you know, I don't know what the latest is with it, but again, I don't know how much COVID affected it or whatever, but like, I, I dude, I love that script and I hope that gets made. I mean, sometimes you write a movie and you're like, Oh my God, I'd see that. Sometimes you're like, it's cool, man. I hope I gave you what you wanted, but then you write shit and you're like, Oh my God, I would fucking die to see that, which is what I'm trying to write more these days. But, uh, that was one of them. And look, knock on wood. I hope that's made too. I, I love it. That's I mean, crazy. It, it, it's cool having great shit out there that you like, hopefully it gets made, but it's, you know, it's frustrating, but it's, uh, it's also cool, man. That's wow. a badass movie. <laughs> well, I can imagine, especially when you've got a leading man, like Emma McConaughey, who was like, this guy was a fucking legend. I love this guy and I, I want to play him. You know, I mean, how else are you going to find him? You know, the, yeah, he's great. He'd be, he'd be perfect. I mean, who the fuck knows? Hopefully, like I said, knock on wood. I mean, all we did is you write it and you put it out there and they got to figure all that shit out. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I it sounds like potentially though, once this COVID thing finally goes away, which it, it will do. It will go away, and we'll get back to a much more normal than we are now. You're going to be really, really fucking busy. <laughs> I mean, I've been pretty busy, but yeah, for sure. I mean, look, it's hard to look. It's a dream. It's so hard to make a movie, and you know, a small engine repair was a dream come true. It's like came out so much deeper and better than I ever imagined it would. You know, it's a, it's it. It's just the timing. I mean, who knew that I was going to have this movie delivered in the worst time to ever deliver a movie in cinematic history? You know what I mean? With all this stuff. And now that we're coming out in a couple of weeks, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen with this thing, but you just got to kind of be Zen. I mean, look, there are people suffering far worse than that, but mm. I've had to just say, look, I'm going to put it out there and hopefully people will discover it. Uh, if not now, eventually, and you know, see what happens. But I think that's where we're at. And, and I don't know when things will get back to normal you know, in terms of, of that kind of stuff. I know. I sort of say it all the time because, like, I want it, I want to believe it and I want it to happen soon. But, yeah, who who knows, man? Who knows? But uh, but regardless, September the 10th, small engine repair hit cinemas and, and people should should go out and see it. It's a, it's and then a great I think movie. it's going to be, you know, as is the nature of, of movies in this sort of current climate, it's going to be on, like, video on demand, I think, like, in October at some point, too. So, oh, great. Uh, 
you know, if you don't want to, if people don't go to the theaters, they don't have a theater playing it. Cause it's not like, it's not going to be on like 3000 screens or anything. Mm. I, I mean, look, I, I just remember, I mean, you probably had this moment in your life too, where you heard about this movie that like, remember it was usual suspects for me. I was like, Holy shit. I mean, I drove like three and a half hours to see that movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Cause I had to see it. And, and uh, those like where I grew up, the coolest movies didn't necessarily play near where I was. So this may be the case with this. So get in your fucking car and drive. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, there you go. That's the hard sell, but no, it's really worth your time. It's a great movie and congratulations on it, John. Um, Thank you for your time, man. Thank you for speaking to me this evening and best of luck sure, with man. it. I, I hope to see a lot more of you in the future. And, you know, you'll have to come back on and we can chat about your next Absolutely, project. Man. I, I look forward to it. I really enjoy your podcast. All right, brother. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Alex Zane here. Thank you for choosing to listen to Just The Facts. And while you can still enjoy these episodes forever, you might want to check out our brand new show, A Trip To The Movies, where each week a different famous film fan curates their perfect night out at the cinema, picking what snacks they'd eat, where they'd sit, who they'd go with, and of course, what movies they'd screen. If you love cinema as much as we do, search A Trip to the Movies with Alex Zane or head to our socials at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod to find out more. <laughs> 